Welcome to the Product Lab Podcast. I'm Mario Araujo, a B2B growth advisor and interim leader. You can find out more about me at marioaraujo.co. Today, we'll have Kyle Poller from OpenView with us as part of the PLG Fall Start series. We're exploring the untold stories behind PLG implementations that failed or that had a false start. And uh, we go deep into the learnings. Kyle and I went deep into product-led sales, and Kyle shared the most common pitfalls that he has observed over the years as an operating partner of OpenView. We went deep into product-led sales and explored the two most common pitfalls when you're trying to layer in or scale your product-led sales motions. One around having reps calling every user that signs up through the free version, and another one related with selling to the user instead of selling to the buyer. This was a blast, and there's lots of actionable advice. As usual, references will be added to the show notes, so sit back and enjoy this episode with Kyle. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle, for joining me here today. I'm, I'm really excited and also humbled to have you here. I, you're someone that I've been following for ages now, it feels like. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm so glad that you could find the time to talk a bit. Thank you for that. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I didn't think I was that old, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm getting up there. <laughs> So maybe, yeah, that's, um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said that maybe, uh, that's my inexperience. <laughs> that's my inexperience. <laughs> I know, I just was keeping a conversation, I'll give you a hard time, but. <laughs> I know, I know, no pun intended there. So, um, yeah, this is a podcast about PLG, uh, false starts or PLG failures, like I like to say. And you have a ton of experience because you're exposed to a bunch of different companies. But even before we dive into the content of the podcast itself, would you just share a little bit about you, what you do, and, and why people should care about what you have to, to share today? Happy to. Uh, so I'm an operating partner at OpenView. OpenView is a VC firm investing in business software companies at the expansion stage. Uh, so we're investors in great PLG businesses like Calendly and Datadog. And in my role, I get to support our portfolio companies as they scale through the expansion stage and beyond really anything that they need help with, whether that's around product-led growth, just customer acquisition, conversion, monetization, retention, myself and, and my team are a resource for folks. And uh, I joined about seven years ago, and I joined the year that OpenView coined the term product-led growth. It was led by my colleague, Blake Bartlett. And since then, a lot of my work has really been trying to figure out what are the best practices of folks that are scaling with a product-led motion, and how do I turn that into advice, frameworks, you name it, and, and just great kind of compelling stories for the broader community. Good, and thank you for, for that. You and your team are contributing so much to the common body of like free knowledge that we have out there. It's amazing what you folks have been doing. I'll be sure to put some of the links of uh, you know your newsletter and other stuff you folks produce in the show notes. I appreciate that. So what does it look like to be an operating partner at OpenView? Like, how do you currently interact with the companies that you work with? It's a good question. It's a question that I get asked about a lot because it's a pretty amorphous role, right? It doesn't exist all that many places. So I guess one way to think about it is that we've got 30 active portfolio companies, you know, give or take at any point in time. They all have a number of challenges around growing their business. First role is the role of air traffic control, right? So a portfolio company runs up into a challenge. 
they reach out, hey, do you have benchmarks on X? Do you know any great marketing leaders who've done ABC before, right? So we like to be that first call when a portfolio founder or executive has a really strategic challenge facing the business. And from there, we can say, all right, we've got you know an introduction we can make to someone that's an expert in this area. Maybe there's a full-time hire that that company needs just to have this capability in-house. Or there's you know, more of a consulting style project where we can go be a consultant on behalf of the portfolio. And so we'll try to do each team member on our growth team, we'll try to do a couple of those projects at a time. And they could last anywhere from two to six weeks. And a project could be, for example, a pricing and packaging project where we're taking the kind of work that you'd get from a Simon Couture or McKinsey, but downscaling it to the needs and timelines of a Series A, B, or C style portfolio company, right? And so we're going out doing customer research, our portfolio company's customers, we're doing surveys, we're analyzing their data, we're talking to a lot of folks internally to develop recommendations. So I think that's that's one of the things that maybe stands out about the operating partner role at OpenView is that we're not just doing you know high-level advising conversations, we can go really deep and get tactical with portfolio companies. And then because we're having so many conversations, you know, every week and every month, we know what's top of mind for a lot of companies. Once we've delivered some sort of insight or recommendation or talked to, you know, a handful of experts on a topic, we really try to open source that knowledge and share it back with the community. And so a lot of what I'll write about on LinkedIn or on a newsletter growth unhinged are questions that I get asked by folks in the portfolio or by enough folks in the portfolio that I figure, hey, I actually should just write something down before I I forget about this topic. So that's another key part of that operating partner role is just building that sort of credibility for OpenView as a firm because software companies are rightly skeptical that a VC can add value. And the only way they're going to believe it is if they can see it for themselves. And so we want to make sure that folks sort of associate us with being helpful and that it's not just us telling them that we're going to be, but they can actually kind of get it, get a chance to try before they buy. That's so cool. I haven't had the chance to work at a company uh, from your portfolio. Maybe it will happen at some point, but I, I can say that I've never had that experience with uh, any of the investors that I spoke with, with the exception perhaps of some angels that are like voluntarily or they're, they're really helpful, at least in my role at software, the previous role at software, but not from the VC. So it's, um, yeah, keep pushing. And that's a reason for, for <laughs> me to consider you and refer you in the future for, you know, founders that I may come across with. Yeah, I appreciate that. Well, and in all candor, I think because of that reputation in the industry, it means founders tend to not choose a VC based on who is going to add the most value or be the most helpful. They're deciding often based on other factors. And I think it's just because there's so much skepticism of the value that they get. So it's something that we as an industry certainly need to fix. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And we'll get there step by step, I guess. So let's talk a little bit about that experience that you've been accumulating over the past years, one or two years. Uh, You won't get me again with the age thing. (laughs) So what I wanted to ask you is, where do you see PLG falling flat and why? Be it in the beginning or more or less in more mature orgs, what do you observe? You know, there's so many ways. And I was reflecting on where there are the most kind of common patterns. And to me, it's pairing PLG with a sales motion, right? Because 
you know, generally, and I think the data has been pretty clear on this, PLG doesn't mean self-service. Self-service tends to not be the bulk of the revenue for large at scale PLG companies. It's all about pairing a product interaction with, you know, generally human touch points that can help expand companies or sell into large enterprises. So pairing that product-led motion with the sales assisted path. And then within that PLG plus sales piece, one path is that folks are actually so reliant on sales that they have a rep calling every single free user, regardless of what they do in the product. And the sales motion is just totally disconnected from what's happening in the product. So that's you know, you've got this really fantastic PLG motion or all of this effort and excitement around it, but sales totally ignoring it or not being bought into it. That's, I'd say, bucket one. And you, you often see that, by the way, for folks that maybe started with a uh, traditional sales motion of trying to add PLG elements onto it and kind of can't adjust the sales process accordingly. The second pitfall is that some folks that start off with a strong PLG motion, they tend to be targeting an end user inside of an account. And there's a lot of reasons why, right? With a PLG motion, you can reach a lot of end users for every buyer. You're often getting champions from the bottom up so that user falls in love with the product, maybe buys via self-service, shares it with their team. All of a sudden, the product's spreading like wildfire inside of an organization. But when you're bringing in sales to a PLG motion, you can't just rely on that user because that user is often not the buyer, they're not the budget holder, they're not the executive. And so the other thing that I see is folks adding sales on a PLG motion, but sales is calling on product qualified leads and stop, you know, that's the starting point and the ending point. And that really makes it hard for them to scale inside large customers. Interesting. So let's go and maybe break those a bit. If you go to the first one that you mentioned about people calling every free user, I'm actually working with a company right now that is early stage and seems like you must have other examples. So they're early stage. They had pretty good, decent, actually uh, self-service adoption. And now they hired a CRO and two salespeople and they're doing exactly this. This just happened between when we've talked about the preparation for this podcast and now. So completely can empathize with that. So very much interested in understanding, well, let's start maybe why is this such a bad thing? What are the second order effects or what observations have you seen or consequences have you seen about this and how should companies go about this? So two questions, why is it a bad thing and how could companies go about this? Yeah, it's a great question. Maybe I'll even share an example from our portfolio. I recently profiled Deputy, uh, which is a portfolio company in the workforce management space. The story is on Growth Unhinged. And they started off with a very PLG orange motion. They have a 14-day free trial. They were founded in Australia, but they saw a lot of traction in the US and other global markets. And they weren't going to you know, have a sales rep on every interaction. But over time, they realized that users who requested a demo or wanted to talk to sales and did so in app converted at extremely high rates. I think it was like north of 50% conversion when someone raised their hand to talk to sales. And so his deputy was looking to accelerate growth, adding more and more sales touch points or sales outreach onto their free Mm -hmm. accounts seemed like a really great strategy for driving better conversion and just faster overall growth. And that's, that was a model that was fine when 
cash was easy to come by. Companies were very well funded. Growth was all that matters. And, and folks were sort of in that like growth at all costs mindset. But that kind of came crashing down when COVID hit. And uh, in Deputy's case, being a business that sold to folks with hourly workers, Main Street businesses, their customers shut down during the COVID, COVID lockdown periods. So that was the chance for Deputy to actually rethink a lot of their go-to-market motion and test some of the assumptions that they had. And one of their realizations was that many of the smaller businesses, companies that were owner-operated, maybe had five employees, those folks actually needed as much help from a sales rep or were as demanding of a sales rep's time as their mid-market customers. And so when they started looking at the cost and the amount of time that reps were spending on those customers relative to the revenue opportunity associated with them and the LTV, there just wasn't a good economic model for having a rep on such small accounts. And so they started to rethink, all right, well, could we test starting to have maybe a limit, right? So maybe it's for a business with less than 10 employees, we'll push them down a self-service path unless they proactively reach out and want to talk to us. And okay, well, what happens to conversion rate with that audience? And they actually found conversion was unchanged. They were able to convert at a similar rate via self-serve as they had with the sales assistant path. And so that gave deputy conviction to both accelerate more of their PLG motion to drive conversion through product and through marketing, and then raise that threshold for when sales really gets more involved proactively. And what they realized over time was that sales was actually able to free up a lot of their time to spend, to be more proactive with their mid-market customers, their larger accounts that were going to be really important for folks to hit quota. And they weren't seeing you know, significant drop-off in that self-service conversion funnel. And so in Deputy's case, over time, they've actually made it so that now 70% of conversions happen via self-service. But it, it's actually great for sales reps as well, because sales reps have a, a better path towards hitting their quota instead of getting bogged down by you know lots of requests from very small owner-operated businesses, they're able to focus their time where it's going to have the biggest impact towards driving conversion and driving uh, outcomes. Interesting. And was there any initial pushback from sales or initial concerns from sales when they shifted? Well, there always is, right? Yeah, that's one of the challenges. That's why it's so hard to uh, have sales stop calling into every account. I think the reason why is that everyone wants a certain amount of lead volume, right? It's seen as, well, the more leads that we get, you know, the more folks we can call on, the more conversions we can happen. They want to see that you know, inbound lead volume go up and up and up. And so there's some fear there that having leads taken away from them or seen as being taken away from them makes it so that it's harder and harder for them to hit their quota. And so I think there certainly was both skepticism and pushback, but there was an openness to A-B testing this to see, you know, what was the right approach. And I think that was the big unlock, right? Is instead of assuming that we knew what the right answer was going to be, we said, hey, this is something that's worth testing because it's a problem today. Um, It's a problem from a timing standpoint, you know, how much of your time is spent with these accounts. It's a problem from a cost of acquisition standpoint, and it's just not scalable. It's not going to allow us to grow even faster. And so there was an openness at least to running an A-B test, getting those learnings. And then now sales is is a big champion of this because they see how it's actually benefiting themselves. And it's a, it's a win-win. 
interesting to see that shift in sales. Sometimes it takes a bit and it's also sometimes painful because these folks need the business to make money to pay their bills. So I'm always empathetic with sales, although there's the occasional friendly fire. So Totally. And in a lot of like small, in a lot of SMB SaaS, the comp plans are monthly, right? And so that's also like, there's a velocity component with some of these deals where for sales are like their livelihood is so dependent on being able to close deals very quickly. And these SM, this kind of small business audience is sort of part of that process. But I think that when folks start moving their sales routes, maybe to mid-market, there's other changes that need to happen to bring sales along in this process. So probably longer time around quarterly sales quota, quarterly sales quotas, more marketing spent towards bringing mid-market customers into the funnel, more training around how to go outbound into target accounts within mid-market. Like there's a whole change management process that can be really important for bringing sales reps along in this journey. Yeah. So in essence, it's about educating maybe ourselves and the sales teams on the economics of attracting users, nurturing users and what channels and how that relates to, well, the cost of acquisition and also the average lifetime value of that customer. And potentially a good rational argument will motivate people to focus on the right things. Is that about it? Yeah, that's exactly right. It takes time for folks to really fully see this play out. And I think that in the meantime, like the transition period is sort of the most painful process. And I think there's things that folks can do to make that transition less painful, like whether it's things I talked about about scaling up mid-market spend or even just in the interim as you're testing a self-service path, still paying reps out when customers buy self-service without a sales touch point. So that way it actually is not really hurting them in the near term because they would still get quota relief for those deals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Makes sense. What would you recommend? So this was an example of a transition. What would you recommend or what do you recommend now for companies like, you know, the customer that I mentioned that is just starting to start well, right? What's like the playbook that you recommend these companies that are starting with this to do? Well, the first I'd say is make sure that you have a self-service mindset as an organization, right? So customers should be able to self-serve on all the key things they need with the product. Uh, So self-service onboarding, uh, self-service path to value, even self-service access to assistance. So if they need help from someone being able to, you know, go in-app chat or contact a rep within the product, self-service conversion and so on. So if you have a self-service first mindset, then you can think about the sales process as actually being incrementally better, right? So where do you want to proactively invest in a better, more personal customer experience for your users? And with that mindset, you start to say, all right, well, if that customer has 100 employees, they might have five locations, they might have more complicated products that they need to integrate. They're going to run into challenges if they try to do this on their own because there's just a lot of complexity. Or they're going to have questions with around security, around legal. They're going to need to go through procurement. Like We don't want them to have to navigate that all on their own because that's just a very high hurdle for them to buy. And so if you think about that as self-service is the baseline, but where are there folks that need a better experience and what is so specific about their needs that we need to design a sales process or a customer success process around that? And I think that that's 
to me, that's the right mindset because it defaults to self-service as the core and you want to make that as great as possible. And then you're able to really understand both what your kind of natural rate of growth is if you weren't to proactively invest in sales and marketing. And then what's that incremental return and incremental CAC that you see when you start layering on more of that additional sales and marketing. Yeah, I love that because it puts the salesperson in a position of offering value instead of extracting value, which is for me as a buyer, it is much more comfortable. I love when I talk to a salesperson that is actually teaching me something that is actually adding value to the conversation. Absolutely. And the re- the experience in the other world, right, where a rep is calling at every free user, you start to do things that are really not in the Spain of like adding value to the user. You start asking maybe for a phone number when someone's signing up, which adds friction to the sign up process and kind of shows that you're not that invested in self-serve, but you're like, well, we've got to get contact information for these reps. And so you start, you know, ask for phone number, you might have an SDR qualifying the user, even if that user has already done meaningful product action in app. So you might have an SDR, then you might have an AE, you just create a lot of steps and friction for the user that feels like a disconnected customer experience. You'll also see for a lot of these models, marketing is pushing out nurture emails, sales reps are calling, emailing, messaging on LinkedIn. The product is sending kind of product-based messages both in-app and outside of, of the app. And so if you start to even map out the customer journey with some of these motions, customers are getting 15, 20 touch points within their first week. And it's just chaotic. It's like someone is in Times Square And so it's never the motion that you would design if you were to try to think about that being a fully kind of architected customer journey that's when a one motion combined across all kinds of departments that are going to be reaching out to the customer. Yeah, makes total sense. One of the nuances here, I guess, would be for expansion. Say for there are many horizontal products out there that can be used like For example, Calendly can be used by marketing, but it can also be used by sales and customer success or even, yeah, at least these three because I I used to use those in a different company. The reason why I'm bringing this example is not that I want you to talk specifically about Calendly, but it's about using sales to find other pockets, other teams in the organization to expand business on. So how much would you, I guess, split the efforts of expanding within the same account between like self-service and sales-driven? Well, that, and yeah, it's, it's an interesting question because that also gets to the second pitfall around selling to the user instead of the buyer. In my mind, when I think about PLG companies and the role of sales, a lot of it starts to actually be in a, an account-based mindset. So what are the characteristics of the accounts that you'd want to have a sales interaction on? And that might be based on company size. It might be based on industries specific use cases. And that's sort of the orientation of, hey, these are really high value customers that are perfect fit for my product. And so there's a lot of opportunities to demonstrate value and drive more adoption. And it might happen via self-service if you give enough time and you know allow for the word of mouth to spread, but it's going to take a while and it's not guaranteed, right? And so you want to actually be more proactive here. And so when I think about where there's opportunity. It really depends on how much... Well, it depends on a lot of factors. I think that based on 
how big the self-service funnel is, right, is, is one of them. So Calendly, as an example, is very fortunate that they've got a viral loop in their product where as someone schedules a meeting, they're always scheduling it with someone else. And that invites new users to create Calendly accounts. And so there's, I don't know how many millions of Calendly users there are. It's probably on Calendly's website, but there are millions and it would be extremely challenging and very expensive to put a sales rep on every user, especially before conversion. And so being able to give those users time to set up Calendly, see value, convert via self-service, maybe even start sharing Calendly with their team, and then bring a rep in more for that for that expansion is a way to sort of filter a lot of the noise and actually work with much more qualified, serious users who are already seeing a lot of value, but where there's significant incremental value that can happen by expanding to other use cases or going wall to wall inside of a company. But for other folks, I mean, if you're trying to land in an enterprise and your product maybe can only be used collaboratively, right? There's not really that single player use case and it's more expensive for you to acquire users, you might start to say, hey, we actually need this rep on the free-to-paid conversion for these enterprise accounts. We think that it's really important for our overall health of our go-to-market strategy to do that. And so we're going to have a rep whenever a new user signs up that's above a certain threshold from an employee account and maybe meets other ICP characteristics. So there's not like a one-size-fits-all around whether sales should be more on the expansion side or on the conversion side, it kind of depends on the overall characteristics of the business and on the target customer. Yeah. How would you operationalize that? I mean, to start with, someone comes in, they have a fairly good base of, uh, let's say, users, free users. How would you make the decision? Like you look at maybe, let's say they have 20,000 people on their database and they're fairly like 50% of these are active, how would you recommend that the new formed sales team would operationalize this so they can start yeah, getting a playbook that scales, but also getting some quick wins to excite the rest of the crew? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so in my mind, the ideal motion looks something like this. So you've got users within an account. You first want to see, hey, it's a target account that I think there's significant opportunity in that I want to sell into, right? And so you would check to see, hey, does this account align with the firmographic characteristics of what I'm looking for? And then within that account, you're normally looking for a couple of things. Like the first thing is, who is your champion from a usage standpoint? And for those champions, the ones who have the highest activity or have done the most in the product, those are people that you probably want to reach out to and just learn. How are you they're using the product? What's the use case? Try to document as much of that as possible and also use that person to navigate the account. Hey, who is the decision maker? Where does budget lie for this kind of tool? Are there other teams in your company that you think would benefit from this but aren't using it today? Hey, would you mind introducing me to so-and-so? Or, hey, I see that you love this product. Did you know we have this feature in the Enterprise Edition? We'd love to get you access to that. What's stopping you from buying that today? Right. So you'll get a lot of really great information and you can leverage those champions in the product, whether they're free or paid, as that low-hanging fruit. And some of them might actually be in a position of buying authority. And so some of them are, are true product-qualified leads where the user is the buyer, and you can get some quick wins from just reaching out to that product-qualified lead and maybe 
selling them instead of on, you know, individual user licenses, sell them on a team plan that they can get easy budget approval for, right? So that's that's a relatively easy win, low-hanging fruit, but not the end goal in the account. So then you, other things you want to look at are see who is the most senior person that's an existing product user? Do you have VPs? Do you have directors? Ideally, you would be you would have a some sort of product-led sales tool, which thankfully there's a lot more of these out there now. You'd have a tool that would help you see the most senior decision makers inside of an account. And you might say, hey, we actually already have users who are potential decision makers. These are folks we should reach out to, or we don't have access to these folks. And then you need to get opinionated either through your bottom-up discovery or just, hey, you know, with the Calendly example, sales is a great use case. We have individual sales reps on the product. You know, recruiting is a great use case as well, but maybe we don't have any recruiters on the product right now. So let's start with sales. I want to reach out to the VP of RevOps or the VP of sales. And then you have the buyer persona. You have a really great story to tell to that buyer about having existing users on the product, the value that those users are going to see. That buyer can reach out to their users and be like, hey, you know, this Calendly thing, this is something we need for the entire team. And so you're able to reach that buyer with a real position of strength um, and a great story, but you need to get to the buyer eventually and you need a message that's going to resonate with the buyer. So that consolidation play is a story and you should definitely be able to tell that story, but you'll probably also move them to an enterprise plan at a higher price per user or just an overall higher price. And so you need to be able to explain the business value of that incremental spend both in terms of the, the new product that you're trying to sell them on and the overall value of that product in the organization. So does this save time? Does it generate revenue? Does it reduce risk? Does it increase leads? Like what is the product solving for that buyer? And it's probably different from what the product does for the end user. So like in the Calendly case, a sales rep might start using Calendly because they hate all the back and forth and all the admin of scheduling meetings. But your buyer, your VP of RevOps or of sales might buy it more because they want to essentially drive more productivity across the sales organization, increase quota attainment, or you know, increase lead generation from embedding Calendly links on their website or in their product. Right. So there's a different story that you need to take to that buyer than that you would use to market to that end user. Yeah, it makes total sense. The positioning would hardly be the same there. There's a, a sense that when we're we're starting in the middle of this second pitfall that we were talking about, selling to all users uh, as if they, you know, selling to the user instead of the buyer, that it works. We get that sense that it works, especially in the early days. Why do you think it feels like it works? Well, it feels like it works in the early days because your users, the ones who were the heaviest users of the product, really are ambassadors for your product and like they go to bat for you. They're probably already advocating for you inside of an account on a self-service basis. And so even just reaching out to those users and arming them with some collateral or you know, trying to sell into this install base that already loves you will generate quick wins in terms of initial deals. The, the deals are probably not going to be that big, but you're going to get very high response rates. Like They're going to respond to every email. They're going to hop on the phone with you and they're going to spend more than they're spending today. So all that's a win, but you really start to tap out that opportunity quickly because you're basically taking this pool that has you know, a high purchase intent 
and you're going to call into that pool, but then that pool is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. You're not growing the pool with this motion. And that's when you start to move from this user mindset to the buyer and account-based mindset that you're growing that pool, right? Where uh, you're able to not just sell into that existing user base, but you're able to expand the user base. Yeah, makes sense. Have you seen any examples where this actually created a bigger problem than necessary that you could share? Maybe you don't want to share the name of a company or something, but have you seen this like in reality create a, a challenge for, for a team? So I think that, I mean, the biggest challenge that I see tends to be that it's just challenging to add more and more reps to incrementally grow the business because you start seeing sales performance decrease as you add more reps, right? You just don't have like the territories from a sales standpoint start meaning that you're taking opportunity away from, from a rep whenever you add a new rep, as opposed to reps being incremental in terms of pipeline and overall revenue growth. And so I think that's the thing is where, you know, if it's your first two or three reps that you're hiring and you've had a ton of self-service traction, a lot of user love, those reps will hit quota easily. But if you want to turn from two reps to 10 or 20, all of a sudden that opportunity is just going to be spread across a lot more people and it's going to be harder and harder for them to hit their number. So the second order effect that can happen here is that we get a small team, we get excited, deals are coming in, and so we're going to triple the number of reps. And the assumption would be we're going to triple or more the revenue. And what will happen is that that will not happen. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, then especially what's especially bad, by the way, is that when folks do that and they're like, we're going all in on sales, we're tripling our sales headcount, these reps are so productive, Oftentimes, that's at the expense of the PLG motion. And so companies stop doing or pause things that have grown those that user base, gotten them to this point of you know being strong ambassadors for the product. And so not only are you calling on the same pool that's now a diminishing pool of power users and PQLs, but the pool is just kind of not getting any bigger because it ends up not being the focus for your uh, product and marketing efforts. Do you just, uh, well, final question, we're almost at the end. Do you believe that uh, there should always be a place in pricing for a conversation? There should always be a tier that is like custom call us to sort of promote these uh, more strategic, higher conversations uh, with sales? Or I'm seeing some companies, I'm sorry that, that there's a question, there's a comment, I'm, I'm messing this all <laughs> up, but I'm seeing some companies that have like three or four tiers there's nothing about contact us. And I remember that I used to use in some past life the, the, the contact us, and I would almost always 10x the last year price with that conversation based on whatever was valuable. But I'm seeing some companies now that don't offer that contact us. They're like full self-service. And I'm thinking, uh, is this good? Is this bad? Have you seen this already? Uh, and if you did, what observations? Well, I guess a few thoughts. One is... When you look at self-service products, there's a limit in terms of how much people are generally willing to pay, like on a credit card or via self on a self-service basis. That number, you know, it's changed over time, but in my head, it's around ten thousand dollars a year is sort of that limit. If you're advertising a price point of call it twenty thousand a year, thirty thousand a year, forty thousand a year, you could be transparent with pricing on a pricing page, for example, if that's part of your kind of brand ethos. And there are companies out there that do that, like Atlassian. 
but you're going to need some sort of like sales assistance in order to get the customer comfortable with it. And then that, I guess that then begs the question of how confident do you feel in the price and in the product? And so if you are publishing it and transparent with that enterprise pricing, the benefit is, 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 you know, it makes it so that the customer feels like the price is the price, right? They feel like there's not a whole lot of room for negotiating. They're not trying to get a 50% discount, 60% discount off of a, you know, fake made up contact us price. There's like, there's more trust there, which is a good thing. They're also able to start budgeting for it, planning around it, right? So if someone sees that out there, they're interested in that product, they can start putting that kind of price point in a budget request, trying to get budget approval for it, you know, start the process internally to make the case for buying that product. But so it can lead to a faster sales cycle and to working with folks who are qualified because they already, you know, if they would disqualify themselves outright based on if the price was too high. I think the downside is you have no flexibility. As soon as you publish something and are transparent about it, that means that you can't start discounting it sort of out of nowhere. You can't charge a higher price. You can't change the value metric. You can't change the features that are part of the plan. And so for a lot of companies, you might not be fully confident in your pricing just yet, especially on that enterprise motion. And you might not want to be held to this is exactly what the price and what the offering is. And in this case, you want to have a little bit more flexibility. I think the final thing to say is that a lot of folks start that contact us tier before they have a fully enterprise ready product. And the contact us is more of a means to get design partners to figure out what that enterprise product and pricing looks like. And so I think that's, that's the other thing just to say is like, just be mindful of where you are in the maturity of your enterprise offering and what that's going to look like in the future. Yeah, that's very helpful. And uh, in the end, if we go back to one of your previous comments, tying that to value will also help so that it's not a forced interaction with uh, with a sales rep just to try to squeeze more money out of you because customers are more educated than ever and th- these tactics uh, rarely, rarely work. Yeah, I mean, I my personal pet peeve is when someone tries to 10x the price and you're like, why? Well, SSO. Like, well... <laughs> <laughs> that's not really a valuable feature, but you know, you're charging. Uh, I see that actually a lot where that's like the core benefit of enterprise and the justification for 10 xing the price, but it's not really in anyone's best interest. No, exactly. Well, it was great having you here. We're at the end of the cast today. I'd love to ask you, well, you mentioned it already, but let's make it uh, formal. Where can people find you online? I'm easy to find. I post on LinkedIn a few days a week about all things growth, PLG, modernization. Uh, and then I've got a weekly newsletter on Substack. It's called Growth Unhinged. And I uh, dive deep into the unexpected behind the fastest growing software startups. So I, I uh, recommend folks check it out and subscribe. It's a free newsletter. And so there's no real downside. Awesome. And speaking of this particular topic of this podcast today. Do you have top of mind any particular resources that you'd like to mention? I'm happy to take those and add them also to the notes. Yeah, the interview I did with Jesus from Figma slash Hex around product-led sales, I think would be a really perfect piece. All right, Kyle, it was a blast having you here. Thank you so much. And keep doing what you're doing because I'm a a regular reader of everything you post out there. You and the team, actually. But thank you. Thanks, Mario. We'll talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. <laughs> and if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews, and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. Happy growing.